0: You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.
1: It's great to see so many of you here this evening for um, this Pala Summer Salon. The Pala events have been a really significant series since day dot, essentially, of M Pavilion programming. So it's really a pleasure to have you here tonight for this salon. Um, I'm going to hand over to Justine Clark to introduce our panel. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Um, Thanks, Jen. Thank you for coming on a Sunday afternoon. Um, We realised a little bit late that we hadn't done a summer salon, and so we just snuck it into the first day of autumn, and thankfully the weather has obliged, and it's still summer. Excellent. So we are very pleased to be back at the M Pavilion. Um, And as, as Jen said, we've done a number of events here over the years now and have a lovely relationship with them. Um, I also want to acknowledge their ongoing and very deep support of AWS, who, um, as many of you know, is our parlour partner, who make the whole salon programme possible um, and who, of course, are responsible for the catering and the bar tab right now. So we love AWS. I'm not sure if they're here. Anyway, maybe. Maybe. Um, And, of course, we have other people from um, other of our sponsors here today, too, who also make our work possible. So, Parlour can only do what it does because we're supported by sponsors and by donors. And um, I know today there are people here from Monash, from Melbourne, from RMIT and from BEC. And uh, thank you. So many of you I know have been to salons before and you know that the aim is to make um, a kind of very friendly and informal space for people to get together. Um, And of course, as you know, to do this, we stage a short public conversation between two women who are themselves, possibly at slightly different points in their careers. Um, I keep hearing my New Zealand accent through this microphone. (laughs) It's very odd. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Very strange. Anyway. um, Okay. So, as you know, again, I think you've probably... Many of you have been here. You all know this, but here I go. Um, There's very few rules at a salon. We let the speakers take the conversation however... um, in whatever direction they'd like. We simply give them the microphones. And as a member of the audience, you will also know that there's only one rule, that you please try to talk to at least one person you don't already know... Because really, aside from having a lovely time in the sun with wine and cheese, what we really want to do is help strengthen um, and build the kind of community that is within and around parlour and um, in Australian architecture. So we're very lucky that Len Frischaud and Cherokee Edwards agreed very quickly to do this, um, as I organised it rather late, sort of realising that summer was almost ending. Um we're really very pleased to re- welcome Elin back to Melbourne. Elin's been in Stockholm for the last eight years and is now the uh, new Professor of Architecture and Philosophy at the University of Melbourne, where she's also directing the Bachelor of Design program. So we, I think we feel very privileged and lucky to have you back here. Thank you. Um, thanks to Melbourne Uni <laughs> too. And Charity, um, I'm really happy to have Charity. I'm just so happy, you know, these <laughs> great... My friends, they're great people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so happy to have Charity here because Charity has been um, really instrumental in Parlour for a very long time, particularly in the Wikipedia project. Um, And so she's been absolutely fundamental to to that project for a long time. And I'm really happy that you're on the stage instead of behind the scenes. Um, And uh, Charity is a lecturer. Charity is a lecturer and researcher at Monash Uni, and I've got lots more,
2: but here you go. Are they on? They're on. I think they're on, yeah. Okay,
0: so we've got a little bit of a plan today. We've prepared a little bit in advance, and um, prepared is a little bit generous. Well, that's right. (laughs) We've got some ideas. Um, But, Charity, I wanted to open by uh, speaking about what I understand so far about your research. I'm thinking um, that we can frame this also in light of uh, emphasising opportunities for feminist and intersectional practices, which is somewhat to go beyond the importance, you know, the enduring importance of consciousness raising around all issues to do with women women and those who identify as non-binary in their relationship to architecture, all those issues. Um, uh, Besides this, I think uh, trying to re-engage in in diversifying our practices becomes this wonderful... um, you know, way of engaging, drawing on these other positions, these other situated knowledges and so forth. And so uh, I I think one of the first times I really encountered your work was when you visited us when I was still in Stockholm at Korte Ho, the Royal Institute of Technology, when we held the 13th International Architectural Humanities Research Association Conference. And uh, we had the wonderful theme, Architecture and Feminisms, Ecologies, Economies, Technologies... And you spoke about um, the work of Rachel Carson, a well-known environmentalist who engages in what I see as some um, uh, storytelling techniques in order to sort of push forward issues around environmentalism. But I also know your work through your amazing Instagram, where where uh, I, I just want to point out... Um, if we're speaking about really wonderful feminist practices, then your approach to the generosity of your citational practices is really wonderful in that you share your bibliography with people and you, and you render it available to them. And um, this gets me finally to the question which is, You know, so my image of you is this person sort of deep diving into an oceanic sort of research domain. And you've just explained to me that as much as it's oceanic, it's also about deep outer space. So we've got this amazing reflection between these two. And um, so I wonder whether you could speak about how venturing into these sort of territories, uh, if you could tell us about some of your favourite feminist practices and techniques and strategies here.
2: Okay. <laughs> That's quite the lead up. And it's also the, um, an extremely generous read, I think, of my work. So, I thank you very much for that. I'm going to um, return that in due course. Um, but it's true. Yeah, we did first speak really at KTH at that amazing conference. And I had this strange little idea. Uh, well, we talked just previously before where... Um, Someone had mentioned to me that they were going to write a paper about something that they were interested in, but they were worried about turning their hobby into their research. And I was like, "Ah, oh, is that not the way you're meant to do it? Because <laughs> that's all I have, right? <laughs> um, and so everything has come out of some strange little interest that I had and a desire to think through it and to think through it through writing or making or making images around that. Um, and that's very often in tension, I guess, with the way that scholarship is perceived to work sometimes. It sometimes gets a bit of an odd reception. But, um, yeah, Rachel Carson was a little bit of an obsession for a while. Um, I, of course, had known about her work uh, with Silent Spring, which really prefigured the whole modern environmental movement and a kind of discussion, a bestseller on DDT and the dangers of kind of toxic industrial practices um, and how they feed through entire systems. Uh, But what I hadn't known before was that all her other work was in marine biology and in really interesting ways in marine biology. She had originally studied and wanted to start a PhD in marine biology, but her father got very ill, she had to return home and look after the family, then her sister died, she adopted her sister's kids, someone else died, a nephew died. There were all these deaths all in a row and she was basically the breadwinner of the family and constantly pulled back to care for everyone. Um, And so she worked in science communication at that point and was writing things for, like, the... um, Oh, the Fisheries Bureau and stuff for the States. Um, and so she started to develop this style of writing, which was very much conversational, which would start to translate, um, you know, new innovations in science and in particularly in marine biology into ways that everyone else could understand and um, kind of come familiar with. Um, but these books get marginalised because of this one position she has with Silent Spring but the books as well kind of get marginalised within science communication they're incredibly well written um and they're beautiful to read there was a time when she was also serialised in the New Yorker at a time when the editors there were trying to generate new ways of talking about living in modern cities and those being really positive ways of living. Um, New kind of strangers doing things together and not necessarily needing to be close-knit, but what can come out of those interconnections. Um, And so her work is influenced by that and in turn influences others who were writing at the same time. So once I started going through all of that, um, it's incredible. And then, I mean, there's a bit of a spoiler I'm going to release in this. she goes through all this terrible kind of situation of being called up before Congress once Silent Spring comes out. The science academies in all the various institutions call her a communist. They say, why would a spinster be interested in genetics? You know, classic kind of diminishment of women just trying to do good stuff. Um, and uh, she dies eventually of breast cancer. Uh, and the diagnosis could never be revealed to her. Because she wasn't married, so no one could tell her husband what was actually going on. And so she was just left to die, basically. When she died, she had wanted a burial at sea. And her brother went, no, we're going to have a state funeral instead. That's been offered. That's far more attractive. And so, again, she was kind of shut off from the ocean. Um, Eventually, years later, he relented under intense lobbying, but only dug up half her ashes and put half of them in the sea. So she's been forever split, you know, um, and kept from where she wanted to be. Um, But also I just thought she was an incredible theorist, basically. And and the work is never recognised as such because it's seen as commentary or kind of um, communication as a pejorative rather than communication as an actual way of mediating between different knowledges. I don't know where I was going with this, LA. Well, I've kind <laughs> I've got of got, I, wandered off track. I've got a good segue if you're okay, happy to go to you, it. Thank you, so,
0: Something else that we realise, um, where, where we share quite a bit in terms of uh, current discourse in our field and in cognate fields, I suppose, is uh, work around an ethics of care. Uh, you know, for instance, recently, last year in Vienna at the Architecture Centrum there was an exhibition called Critical Care, uh, curated by Elke Krasny and Angelica um, Fitz, uh, an exhibition that maybe will manage to kind of uh, visit Australia, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, but this ethics of care and how we bring it to bear on architecture is another theme that I th- that we're sharing. And mm-hmm. what you're describing also about this woman who whose influence, you know, I think we're seeing increasingly as we turn yet again to the u- urgencies around us in terms of the environment, her influence is being... Felt again through yeah. such domains as the environmental humanities and so forth but we see too through your description there's very much a kind of labor of care involved in all her acts you yes. know to communicate to kind of render something available mm. um, the fact of the care for her family that she's undertaking as well as you know trying to do her own creative work and yeah so maybe um, maybe we can go on to care we
2: with should. respect we to what, you know also the gender things around care we should, right? Yes, because we talked about this a little bit. Um, is it, it, of course, always falls to women to do this work, And but it can be terribly essentializing to think of it in those terms. So, you're often caught in that context where, yeah, I mean, I can talk a little bit about a research group that I work with and yeah. I'm, it's really interesting. There's one other woman in that group of six. Um, there's a bunch of boys who are interested in care and about civic kind of practices and how... and actually discussing them and articulating it as care. And so I think that's fascinating. And I shouldn't think that's fascinating, right? Because I think that should be the benchmark. But it is kind of amazing that these boys are thinking like Mm -hmm. that um, in this context. But, yeah, I I get concerned because it's so taxing. It's so exhausting, all that care. And often I will have a grumble and, like, I don't want to be the mom of this group. Like, I don't want to be making sure that everyone's energy is okay or that we have you know, the right kind of disposition towards this work and the follow-up of all of that and making sure that everyone is speaking to everyone else and there are no kind of egos in clashing kind of mode. But it invariably falls to the women to do that. But then you're like, no, I'm actually like a misanthrope. I am the wrong person to be... Humans are the worst. I would much rather spend my time with other animals. So...
0: (laughs) Yeah, so it's all very well to be engaging in theories of care,
2: That's which right. are sort of wonderful. But I don't want to and... touch it with a stick. Yeah, right? but to <laughs> actually <laughs> practice care, this is another thing altogether. Ew. <laughs> like, so, yeah, there's always that tension as well. Like, how do you actually do that? But, um, and I know that because I'm starting to go back and read further back. So there's a whole range of scholarship from the early '90s, right? Which is, which I vaguely recall from at the time there was a far more um, there's a greater sense of urgency and, like, unapologeticness mm-hmm. um, involved in writing in that way. And mm-hmm. I just I know some of that is lost and I know times are different and I know the conditions are different as well. But I can't believe that people aren't more angry. No, that's it. Yeah. So, we, <laughs> we need to re-engage
0: in care, not only as in yeah. terms of its theoretical framing, but in terms of practices of care. And architecture could be a good place in which those sorts of uh, works could be undertaken. Um, But this maybe also brings us remember we were going to talk about um, what it means to work as a woman or also, you know, non-binary or choose your other classification um, inside institutions of higher education which are certainly places in which care risks getting a little bit gendered um, and we kind of get sort of uh, placed in positions that we might not have chosen on account of our gender Um, uh, because you wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, what it means to work, at work in that location, yeah. you know, and what it means to work there today. And, uh, you know, as we all know, we're in the midst of this coronavirus crisis and um, some of the first most vulnerable people who suffer, um, as well as the students who we have to really be looking after, mm. are our sessional staff. Yes. Um, who, you know, they're precarious labourers. And so how do we kind of deal with some of these tensions? I don't know, that was something else we are going to... Yeah, gonna...
2: yeah, and the precarity of care. I mean, care absolutely requires volunteer, like extra labour always. And you can get into, I think, big arguments about how can that labour be recognised? How can it be, you know, does it need to be remunerated? Can it be rewarded? Can it be at least acknowledged? Can it be configured in a way that it is part of the workload but then you get caught up in all sorts of entanglements like I don't want to monetize care, mm. I don't want to financialize this kind of work I don't. I don't want it to sit within that kind of framework. So you're both supporting a thing that you don't wish to condone in order to get some kind of clawback yeah. within it. You're always terribly complicit in all these things but, yeah, I get... Um, tremendously concerned about the situation at the moment, um, particularly around the virus and the way in which higher education is going to... There are going to be very long-ranging implications Mm -hmm. of this thing which is being felt very immediately. um, And they're all connected to care. Like, how do we sustain a system which is reliant, like 70% reliant on teaching done by people who do that in a casual fashion? Mm Um, and that works well for everyone at the moment, right up until today's or you know, the last few weeks of crisis in which a lot of people will be thrown into crisis because that work is simply not available. Um, and that's difficult enough for institutions to manage you know, to kind of turn on a dime to respond to that. But it means a lot of people that we both rely on but also have deep connection too, right? They're all our friends. Yes. They're all the people that we want to work because we value the work that they do and the teaching that they do um, more than just being warm bodies in place to teach. Um, so how can you support them through that? Because you know as well that you will want them to come back as mm. soon as conditions are OK again, but you... Completely empathise with their frustration with the process, and also their probably unwillingness to venture back in after this kind of experience. Yeah, that would be the, that would be part of the risk for sure. Mm. Mm. I don't know what. My- Point was again. I feel like <laughs> no, it's no. So we're, like... ca- we're covering good ground. We're making commentary. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember. I remember because Justine has been like gesticulating wildly <laughs> at me that I haven't introduced yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. So, This might be a good opportunity. Yes, my to my that, right? Um, yes, and so we talked about yes. We first encountered each other at KTH, but that's not strictly true. Because I was a very timid student at RMIT who had, of course, had heard of Helene and was far too scared to ever approach you because of how,
0: yeah, the scary lady phenomenon is what Esther and Athelitis called it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> or just like the very intelligent woman and like what would an idiot like me be doing talking to... Her? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, it was like extraordinary to go to KTH, right? And do that conference and actually converse with you and... That was the thing that prompted the care conversation, that's right. You had this very deliberate way of organising the conference which showed enormous amounts of care and kind of interest in both the people who were arriving, the things that they were interested in talking about but the implications of all those things. Um, and the kind of events that were put on, the kind of collective nature of those. Mm. There was dining together. There was even the slipping on um, on a necklace of our names rather than little name tags, right? There was an enormous awesome amount of personal attention attended to all of that. And I just, she's not scary. Like, she's amazing. More <laughs> than <It wasn't> anything <laughs> oh, I'm else. so glad we got over that then. <laughs> yeah. Um, But I wanted to talk about that because that to me is supremely interesting, right? That how you manage to do that um, as a junior academic coming into this world and realising how exhausting that kind of work can be. But you seem to take great delight in it and to be, uh, in a way, inspired. It's a horrible word, but um, energised by it in some ways in those kind of conversations and those connections that are made. And that it goes beyond mentoring. So I wonder how that fits with your own kind of conceptualization of the work that you do and the work that you hope to do now that you are back in Melbourne yeah. leading up this program.
0: I, I think I'm on the record saying that I would never run another international conference in my life, though I am happy to advise people. The, sure.
2: the, the,
0: the thing is that the year before I'd also run the ninth international Deleuze studies conference. So I kind of had just bounced from one huge event to the next. Mm-hmm. But the thing is for both events, and both events um, involved quite a strong emphasis on creative practice in- to be incorporated into the, in the midst of the papers and to shake up some of the norms of academic conferencing. So at the Deleuze Studies Conference, for instance, we set up dialogues rather than keynotes mm-hmm. at the Architecture and Feminisms AHRA Conference. We had wonderful panels, like the Parlour panel. Parlour joined us there, which was great. And again, we tried to set up a sort of... ...a little bit more of a sort of uh, the dialogue approach... ...or we just wanted to mix up the structure uh, quite a lot. But in both instances, you know, it was... Um, ...as it turned out, and this wasn't necessarily by design... ...it's just the way it worked out. I worked with teams of women and, um, and younger women, younger scholars... ...and I'm in complete debt to them... You know, it is their astonishing work like Karen Reisinger... ...whose idea, the necklaces at the architecture and feminisms... That's what, ...that was her idea and she did that with students. I thought she was a little bit crazy to like to go to such lengths <laughs> actually. I'm going, oh my God, really? You're going to sit around for hours... ...like organising these matchboxes with the, the right names in them? But it really produced an effect. She knew she was onto something. Mm. Or I worked with another wonderful woman at the Deleuze conference... Um, ...and it was a team of women who put together the conference too... ...from uh, many uh, institutions across Sweden... Um, but I worked with Bettina Schwarm, who was just like you know, just gave me courage the whole way through. And so the thing is, for both events, it's very much that collective effort, and also um, the importance of not of avoiding. There can be, I think, I, I, there always risks being quite a lot of selfishness in academia as we kind of territorializing, claim uh, our domain, you know, You've and you know. Find your bit. Yeah, no, that's it, this is like, keep out, this is mine, you know. Whereas um, uh, what I found, uh, what happened for me in the eight years in Sweden was, well, maybe I was fortunate because of the people I was working with. Uh, Maybe, you know, there were a few great opportunities that came through while I was there and I managed to get funding for quite a few events. Uh, But it was really about the collaboration and to challenge notions of that singular author, you know, signing the the event. You know, it was so important that we were working on this together and that that was always respected at every point. You know, you acknowledge the team. It wouldn't be possible, you know, without that collaboration. Mm. And for me, this is sort of central to a feminist ethos, like collective works that are collaborative, working together... um, and when you're in Sweden too, of course, what you do anyway is you, you aim to flatten hierarchies. There's a big thing about yeah. flattening hierarchies. Someone always has to do the, 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 the hard work though as well. I mean, the spreadsheets. The spreadsheets end up with someone at some point who's ticking off to make sure... Yeah, yeah. Nothing oh no, amazing. Yeah, <laughs>
2: talking to the wrong person. <laughs> nothing wrong with
0: scripture. No, no. There's nothing wrong with <laughs> no, nothing. It's true. It's true. They are amazing instruments. <laughs> yeah, but um, but this is also us thinking. You know, in our conversation as well. Um, I'm I'm assuming that uh, based on uh, the where I am in that kind of academic ladder, that I'm being pitched here as the as the senior academic, and you're the emerging researcher. But the thing is, when I look at your, when I look at your, yeah, this is not so the case old. at all. My, not, my. but you know, we all, we're all feeling a bit <laughs> old these days. But um, when I look at the work that you're producing and how inspiring it is, like uh, you know. Um, those of us who have been at it for longer and going through those sorts of uh, hoops and thresholds and leaping through hoops of fire so as to get promotions and so forth, um, we nevertheless absolutely depend on our relationship with with, um, emerging scholars or scholars earlier in their career um, who, who, um, you know... I'm, I'm, not, I'm fine with using in, inspiring and so forth and, you know, like it's the work that I'm doing with the younger scholars which has just meant so much to me. And then also, you know, doing co-writing um, work and so forth and, yeah.
2: But I think that's it. Like you can get to a point, and I do it quite a lot, of complaining about academia and kind of the workload and the pressures and the politics and the intensities. But I don't think I've worked anywhere else and I've worked in a lot of different things, which is why I came to this so late. I haven't worked anywhere else where, for me, there has been actually that kind of interest from people further up the ladder, right? And, and actually, actual mentoring and actual kind of support from up above. And I can point to people all around in this facility and people in the second row in particular, who have helped me enormously at work. And yeah, yeah. there's only one reason why I can do the research that I do is because of the enormous amount of investment that other people have made, and these people are generally women mm-hmm. who are helping other women because of the, the obstacles yeah. that are structured in our way. No,
0: and this is something that's fundamentally important. And so um, I recognised very clearly when I became a professor uh, in Stockholm that uh, my primary responsibility was to absolutely look out for those people who are much more vulnerable below me on different kinds of contracts, who are trying to make their slow way forward, that my job was to be, you know, the loud mouth or the woman who made a fuss or the woman who had a secure position, so should speak up when something was just not appropriate or should speak up when, hey, this panel <laughs> this panel is not working, it's all men. <laughs> you know, be unafraid and so forth.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's been a particular thing that I've noticed um, because it was only a very short time ago that I got an appointment myself, right? And what I didn't realise was when I got that contract which said it's an appointment rather than a contract or rather than a rolling contract or rather from here to there, like my shoulders literally dropped and I hadn't realised how much I had normalised clenching, basically, (laughs) and, and a level of anxiety around. But you just forget it, that exists. And so an an appointment gets you that kind of, um, yeah, that kind of reduction. It does, in in a way that's never been, I'd never had before in any other kind of job I've had, let alone in academia. So it was really important, as you say, to me, to then be looking at... You are now the one who can be annoying. You are the one who can say the things that people don't actually want to hear because you have a security which allows you to not speak on the behalf of but to completely agitate and keep kind of making trouble and keep revealing those who don't have that security and what can you do to kind of bolster their kind of thing. Because it's a very opaque institution at times as well. Yeah. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) <laughs> um, I did have another question for you which was a bit more prosaic which was really about this thing about returning and mm. leaving and, um, and it's not true exactly that you've only just returned because you do return, you have um, connections elsewhere in the country as well um, and I wonder can you ever find one point where you do stay still mm. and do you connect to that just place or are you forever kind of looking in one direction and the other at the same time? Yeah.
0: Okay. That's a that's a, that's a challenging that's question. Right. Like uh, uh, ask me to talk about some philosophical concepts, I'll be just fine. Speaking but talking about talk yeah. about your feelings. Oh, that's anyway. re- that's really challenging. <laughs> no, it's um. I mean, uh, in many ways, um, increasingly, I've come to recognise that I am, in any case, um, a child of migrant parents. Or one of my parents was, you know, migrated to Australia when he was a teenager. My dad. And, um, you know, it took me a long time to recognise this. And, and so there is that inherent restlessness embedded in my family mm. because certainly on my father's side, people were constantly wandering. And, and um, so there's a sense of... Um, I, uh, I can imagine that wandering continuing, but I am getting more tired. <laughs> and there is something really nice and just like... You talk about your shoulders relaxing... Being back in Melbourne, which is so familiar, um, hopefully I'm less likely to produce cultural faux pas, which I'm still at risk of in Sweden. I think. Um, I mean, you've come to the right country.
2: <laughs> like, if it's cultural faux pas you're interested in, oh <laughs> God, you're, you're allowed to commit That's, it constantly. <laughs> seen more, really, as you know, a benefit, no, as a strength rather than a yeah, yeah negative.
0: But it's also a symptom of my family having a partner who's German, and so you know now I'm in a situation where. In all likelihood, one or the other of my children will go back to Europe to study. They're both German citizens. I'm a Swedish citizen as well. I'm yeah. very proud to be a Swedish citizen. And I was very proud to be a, you know, I was a, st- I was a civil servant. I was working for the government in working at the Royal Institute of Technology. And in Sweden, you can be very proud of that. Yeah. And there's something wonderful about discovering that the state can operate in such a way. You know, we, we, we very loosely talk about the nanny state and so forth here. And, you know, there there is a whole crisis of confidence in... In politics, and we we probably shouldn't venture too far in this direction. But what I did discover in Sweden is that you know it's possible to work together on this level, you know, and we have this responsibility. And so I really got that feel, and I learned a lot about that um, in the Swedish context. But who knows? Yeah, there's Sweden still there, and. so I don't know, yeah, I, I, Melbourne is a really great place to be because many of the people I love deeply here are here. You know, the most extraordinarily special people are in Melbourne. Um, now there are also many people in other places and I'm the godmother of a f- the fourth child of two close friends of mine in Sweden so I'm yeah. forever attached also to Sweden for these various reasons. So I have made it more and more complicated basically in the yeah, end, yeah. yeah.
2: It's the entanglement
0: that we were talking about. entanglement.
2: large, yeah. <laughs> Yes, it is. Oh, price of oh. caring. Mm-hmm. I would say, and maybe this, you know, connects with Elke's work as well—the planetary caring, planetary scales of those sorts of processes. Um, but that is, yeah, the point about that—the Swedish state. That's another thing that can we learn from Sweden? And of course we can, because I can remember when I first visited Stockholm, and I went to the town hall, and in the town hall—I mean, it's extraordinary, right? The town hall is extraordinary. But there's a little spot in the one of the first courtyards that you come through and there's a little tree there and there's a little plaque near the tree that says, this is like the children's parliament or something and this is where children come and meet policy makers in Stockholm to talk through issues about the city and blah, blah, blah. I was just like... Oh, my God, they're living in the future. <laughs> I cannot conceive of such a thing existing in my own world back oh in Australia. No. But this is... This is a, in the Swedish context, it's built into, you know,
0: education from the earliest years. So, uh, r- rather than an emphasis on the kind of academic skilling up, there's first the emphasis on on, on social relationality. So, you know, you start your school day with a somling... You, uh, kids will all sit around in a circle and um, just kind of say whatever they feel about, you know, how they're going, or else they'll make a comment and they'll say, well, I didn't didn't like lunch yesterday. Or <laughs> I mean, it'll be the simplest thing, but they're learning how to get along with each other. Um, there are downsides to this too because it is very much a consensus-based society, and so people find it hard to get into a heated argument. Um, and they always want to re- resolve things as quickly as possible, which for someone like me is just like a red flag to a bull. I but just what want if f- we didn't? Like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just can't help it. You know, well, I'll wait a minute.
2: <laughs> and I wonder, do you think... Um, that this is going to influence maybe the way in which you're thinking about research back in Australia and maybe about the program. I should have a kind of segue into teaching. Yeah. What does that provide you? Oh,
0: gosh. Well, um, one sad part of my current role is that I won't have a lot of teaching. And I, when I'm not teaching, I do miss it um, because it is a, a very heavy administrative role. I'm um, the director of the Bachelor of Design, And, you know, it's a very complex diagram what that Bachelor of Design is and it incorporates three faculties and I'm still trying to get my head around exactly what it means um, and trying to understand within a large institution how you can make some change. Well, first you have to learn about how it's working and what's working well and so forth. Um, Then, of course, there's, you know, finding the research within the Australian context, something that I can kind of, uh, you know, get my teeth into and... um, The thing about that is that it's never a straightforward thing transitioning from one uh, work context to another, let alone one work context in a whole other, uh, you know, part of the world into another. (laughs) Um, So I've got, you know, a bunch of projects that are in the middle of happening and a couple of book projects and uh, things that are unfolding. Um, And uh, so there's going to be a little bit of wait and see what works out. I am very, very lucky and I've been extremely well supported um, in coming into this role because I'm able to advertise a postdoctoral position, um, which means, again, that role of collaboration and learning from, you know, scholars who have more time to actually read the good stuff than I do. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. So once I get that going, I think we'll have to start hatching something. What might it look like? That's the question...
2: Maybe this is a point to kind of bring in um, some questions around the post humanities. Mm. And because I know something's already hatching, really. Indeed. Could I ask you to talk a little bit about Okay,
0: that? so yeah. this is something else that we share, and you might have gotten this a little bit from Charity when she's saying she'd much prefer to hang out with animals and non humans or other yeah. animals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, <sorry. laughs> um, like there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the animals I just blew off my arm, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, both of us, uh, in terms of our, um, our inclinations in the, in the domain of uh, theory um, and how it helps us into our practices, I'd say, um, are very much interested in what's broadly described as the post-humanities. And, in fact, I'm also on the advisory board of the post-humanities hub, which has been set up in, in KTH and another department there with Cecilia Bay. And uh, so, what is this thing, the post humanities? And in fact, we're going to be asking this question on a panel together at uh, the next, hopefully, well, assuming they accept our uh, proposal, <laughs> that is, I should not be preemptive, okay. at the next Society of Architectural Historians Australia, New Zealand in Perth. We're going to be looking at the post humanities and we're going to be looking at it in light of. Um, a very valuable uh, research formation that emerged out of the UK context called the Architectural Humanities Research Association, which I which I cited before because that was um, uh, the organisation that supported the Architecture and Feminisms Conference. Um, so if we're desperately trying to cling on to the Architectural Humanities as that other mode of doing research, so beyond history, beyond theory... Uh, engaging in a bunch of disciplines also heading toward, uh, you know, geography and ethnography and bringing these all together um, as a range of possibilities for the kind of work we might do in architectural studies. What does it mean to suddenly challenge that with the idea of the Mm. post-humanities? I think, well, the post-humanities has a long history and I'm not going to go into it. I'm most specifically interested in the feminist aspects of it. And so there are certain key thinkers such as Donna Haraway, also Isabelle Stengers, both philosophers of science who give us many different sort of tools for thinking the post-humanities. But what it, I would say, primarily does is asks us to challenge certain assumptions we've had about uh, the privilege of the human in amidst sort of global systems, in amidst nature, if you want to call it that, in amidst environments. Mm -hmm. So to challenge the idea that we're at the top of that pyramid and instead to um, demand that we acknowledge somehow our full entanglement, embeddedness, interconnection, Uh, ...to both recognise uh, that, yes, we need to acknowledge some responsibility... ...for the massive global destructions we've wrought... ...and, you know, hence the inauguration of that term, the Anthropocene... ...and all the problematic discourse around that. Mm -hmm. Um, But then it also gives us opportunities... ...because through the post-humanities, if you even in a a little way... ...manage to slightly re-situate your point of view on worlds... ...or what I like to call environment worlds... Uh, maybe through that shift you can acknowledge other relations and other forms of placemaking and other, other kinds of urgencies to yeah. see things in a different way um, and thereby to engage in them uh, differently. And so I think it's very productive because it, it's, um, it, it asks us to rethink... Our, ...our engagement and relationship to to a world um, and to others, including more than human others. Yeah. Um, and so it's a, it's a kind of challenge to us. And it might even seem counterintuitive and it might really mess with our heads... ...because we like to imagine that, you know, humans are sort of where it's at. Yeah. But, In nah.
2: charge. And there's, there's a whole bunch of other thinkers as well, like Eric's fingerdow and, mm. and many others... You've, of course, questioned whether we've ever been in control or ever in charge as well. And so what is this kind of framing of the human? I mean, Rosie Bredotti was here just a little while ago as well, just talking about that and saying this idea of humanism carries a lot of, you know, Western Eurocentric kind of baggage, you know, and has helped establish that, you know, against what we might find elsewhere in the world and amongst other people, let alone other animals around. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think it does... I mean, it certainly helps me think about things quite differently. I was always, can remember in kind of staff meetings talking about we really need to get, you know, more animals on staff and kind of saying that (laughs) half-jokingly but not really because then I ended up writing um, a book chapter with a friend of mine where we looked at southern (laughs) ocean elephant seals and the ways in which they're augmented with all all sorts of kind of sensory technologies and this is not to find out more about the seals. You know, the scientists are plugging these little sensors on their heads with um, super glue because they dive really deeply and they're actually remapping the seabed. So my first thought, of course, is that these seals need to unionise, right? Oh, they need seriously. To, there they are research associates. Like, exactly. They need at least a co-author credit yes, for this work. Yes, definitely. Um, <laughs> but they are, like, we have used, obviously, you know, I'm not even coming from this as a... Uh, as an animal rights activist, as simply as someone whose labour has also been exploited in the past and there are all sorts of empathies and sympathies you can build up in that way. Um, And to think a bit more carefully about how we do actually do things in the world and and who is this, you know, you talk about it, who is the we? Mm. Who gets included in the we?
0: No, that's right. Starfish even, according
2: to Gregory Bateson. The constitution of the... United States of America as well. Doesn't he doesn't he have this huge list of who is included in the we? That's right. Yeah. And and they're
0: not all recognizably persons. No. Yeah. They can also be, yeah, documents such as the constitution and hmm. um, agreements and, hmm.
2: and I think that is um, yeah, that's what I take from it. I was quite terrified when you were talking about it the post-humanities before because you were gesturing towards me. and I thought, oh, God, Elaine's oh. going to ask me to explain this and this is going to be <laughs> really mortifying because I'm just going to talk about animals. Right? Yeah, <laughs> but I... Just block out which everything. is a very
0: important part of it, the non-human turn. We'll,
2: we'll see that, yeah, 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 Um But essentially it's, um, it's quite joyful to be able to do that because I also explore that in a lot of my teaching as well in studio yes. teaching, um, which is a lot of fun, mm-hmm. I've got to say. But it's also... I mean, I always feel extremely lucky and privileged and it's quite indulgent that I have research that I actually really love and enjoy doing and everyone tells you their little anecdotes about their pets and the other animals that they really love and we trade stories about what is your favourite animal and think about the life worlds of starfish and all the rest of it. Um, And it becomes quite obsessive and there's a very high kind of... um, vegan transformation rate in my studios Uh by the end of the semester which I'm of course like amazed by because I'm not like I I love these animals but also someone happy to eat them as well it's just like you know I don't quite know how to reconcile that yet but I try and avoid it at all costs because duck I mean oh my god duck (sighs) but also I love little ducks Oh, different these things. are dilemmas.
0: They are, yeah, no, yeah. but this is what I've also um, seen in your Instagram feed too. Some of the amazing work that you've done with the students, and to recognise too how that research-teaching relationship can be uh, so beneficial. You know, both to both uh, sides, both the uh, the researcher-teacher and and the student, in terms of what you can discover together. I think it that's is. extraordinary.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and that's also. I mean, that can be difficult as well because I don't consider it research-led teaching. Like, I always think the teaching Mm -hmm. is the place to play with all the research where you don't have the actual pressure of having to produce research outputs from it. Um, But you can experiment and see. And, of course, the hardest thing is to explain your research to someone who doesn't understand. It's like trying to explain what you do to your mum (laughs) or, you know, a second-year architecture student. It's like, you're doing what? How is that urban? What are you talking about? I know, but the great—that's great the sea. That's not urban. Oh, well, let yeah. me just give you two thousand words on why it is. <laughs>
0: uh, but it also, really like a, you know, framing a framing a design studio is a place in which you literally lead students into uh, possibilities for thinking exactly yes. these relations with non-human yeah. others and um, yeah. other spatialities, other points of view and spatialities, and I think that I think that can be pretty exciting. You mentioned, yeah, back to that insti- back to the institution. In fact, in a way that we were discussing before, also in terms of the pressures um, on academics. So we've talked about the precarious labour of uh, sessional staff members or staff members on contract, but there's there are enormous pressures on staff, um, you know, to produce uh, certain amounts of research according to point systems. Often uh, having to identify specific star-rated journals. Um, and uh, uh, you know these are these are the bars to kind of uh, progressing through one's career, for instance. and we were we were we began a, a, a texting conversation around what about um or oh, this is how I read it anyway, what about slowing down a little bit? i mean, when you when you begin to see all the journals out there in the world that are available now and the endless amounts of material that's being churned out, you begin to wonder, is this actually useful? Maybe we can be more sustainable about our research outputs. I shouldn't be saying this, obviously, as a representative of the University of Melbourne. (coughs) But anyway... Because let's get more of them. No, but you begin to see... I think I've been... Partially, it's a critique of myself because I think I've been Mm. overproductive and haven't allowed myself enough slowing down. And um, the the capacity to really spend time with something. And I was listening Mm. to you talking about your current... Um, process as you close in on the end of your PhD and the importance of just taking the time that's needed mm. um, to do that, and um, and how you're also enjoying it. And I'm wondering whether um, we're not doing ourselves any good service by uh, requiring such a furious output, and whether yeah. we wouldn't all be better off if we spent more time sitting around together talking. And um, plotting things and then slowly, slowly making our approach to what is necessary. Um, whether it's, yeah, you, we could pervert the notion of sustainability into terms of a sustainable practice of research or, I yes. don't know, what do you think about
2: that? <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah, super high on my agenda at the moment <laughs> with um, all sorts of anxiety-ridden woes around it, no? Like, it particularly as... And and ECR, I mean, what is even that? Um, An early career researcher, like, the the pressure is very much on to be, well, in my instance, finish your PhD, but also be publishing and also be, like, bringing in grant income and also be doing research and also be doing a lot of engagement, but also teach excellently. Could you just do all of that? But also, here are the seven committees that you might want to sit on. Mm. There is no option B. There's just the seven committees, right? So, um, how do you do all these things? And, I mean, it clearly doesn't sit within a 40-hour week, right? There's just no way that that's possible. I mean, I'm quite bad at maths, but even I recognise (laughs) that's not really working. Um, And so, part of this drove, you know, a, a collective that my colleagues, my friends and I had started a little while ago, which was to think about... Okay, well, we each have our own divergent interests and our own little lone wolf weird research agenda that we need to protect that doesn't really bring in any money, but also it has no overhead, so I don't see why I should apologise for it. Um, but how can we actually work within this system, right? Um, and actually do some of the more interesting things that we also want to do, but which don't really fit in with the research agenda of the main individual. Um, and so we just started talking to each other as weird nerds who like outer space and sci-fi. Started talking to some astrophysicists because it seemed like it wouldn't matter. Um, Started playing around with their software. They played with our software. We didn't come up with anything good, but it looked interesting. Um, And then it generated into a series of, or degenerated, whichever way you want to look at it, like installation work, um, some failed competition entries. um, But then we got to do a thing and we got to refurbish this old courthouse, that's out in the Wimmera, out in be, like five hours northwest of Melbourne, um, because we talked about indigenous cosmologies and we talked about being able to entertain an idea of nighttime tourism, being very far from the city, being able to actually see constellations in such crisp clarity, it's incredible. It feels like it's almost smothering you, the space is so close. Um, We started working with cultural astronomers. We started to work with all the kind of creative practitioners who are out out there where we thought there was nothing, but it turns out there's heaps of things. Um, And we're able to do that collectively in a way that we share everything. We co-author everything. Everyone gets the points. Everyone gets the money. We divvy things up based on whatever emergency has kind of emerged. Um, And we've been able to find a way of working as a collective that enables that and can turn it into a bit of a machine in a way. So it just runs kind of quietly on the side. Well, not quietly, but, yeah. And and it means it can be a bit of a catch-all for all the things we want to do, but we never had a reason for it. So now we get to run our weird sci-fi film series. Now we get to make odd things with robots and talk about farm machinery and... We all want to get a big truck next and so we try to put in these grants. So it makes a way to actually congeal the various diverse interests of a number of people but not have that be our main thing but leverage the kind of Mm -hmm. sideline interests into something that works and now through doing all this work with these communities and talking through them and practitioners who are up there, we're theorising through it at the same time and making things and realising what we're actually talking about is a kind of civic creative practice, a way in which you make things with other people in your town and it's through that making and those buildings of relationships that actually starts to generate the town surviving, not the things that you put in there for people to come and see or the things. So it really shifts away from a what are we doing architecturally to what are we doing in terms of practices? Yeah. Which it always comes back to, I think. Well, that mm-hmm. sounds like an amazing example of, of, of taking
0: on the research challenge and finding one's way to it based on just those allegiances and and shared interests rather than feeling kind of compelled or forced to produce something for the sake of producing something. It's an amazing research journey you're describing.
2: But it's also terrifying, right? Because it started off quite deliberately non-strategically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now it's moving into strategy. (laughs) We're just like, we're mortified. It's Uh, like well, the weirdos. We actually sit within a research stream in the faculty now and it's just like, what? How did that happen? So, you know, careful what you wish for, I guess. Hmm. I I think I'm getting slightly eaten
0: by ants. There's like an ant nest here or something. And and they've called up
2: too many more than a human kind of relations.
0: (laughs) But um, what do you think? Should we... We'll look to our host and... uh, (laughs)
1: <laughs>
2: right. But the problem is that we just continue forever. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah,
0: we've got, we've got, we can get into all of this in a bit more depth now.
3: <laughs> yeah, there was something you said about um, sustainability, and you know what direction is research going, and so on, and it made me think of how I know in some fields that research money is very. Um, targeted to industry or whatever, and I'm wondering how much do you find that um, the goals of sustainability are thwarted by those financial interests?
0: I think we have to be very inventive about what industry means here. Um, But... uh, This is also, of course, a growing trend, like the Favoured Research Project is one that is an industry linkage one. Um, and we're heading toward... Where we, I was previously... We were heading toward this somewhat in the Swedish context, but with less of a sort of imperative drive... Um, so, I know a couple of the job interviews I've done, you know, when when I was kind of, you know, having a little look back at Australia, uh, the main question I would always be asked would be, all right, so what are your ideas for industry linkage? This was the most important thing. It didn't really matter what else I'd done, but w- you, what's your take on this? So, it does make me feel a bit flummoxed sometimes. But I think, I think this is where... Um, this is where I'm, 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 I'm going to learn from charity here uh, because I think that there are very inventive ways of redefining what industry might be. And so, you know, it can include, uh, I understand, and I'm, you know, it's been eight years since I've been here, so I'm still working it out. But, you know, we can collaborate with the NGV Or we can collaborate with a local municipality, which would be the kind of thing you do in Stockholm. So you get together with the local municipality and you'd work on, you know, a collective garden project or you'd work on uh, the issue of housing, renovating um, a million project housing or something. So industry isn't all bad. um, But at the same time, we do need to be very wary. And so someone who we both know well from the UK context, Jane Rendell, um, who's at the Bartlett School of Architecture. She's had an ongoing, enduring, um, b- ethical battle um, and even resigned from her position as director of research, I think she was, uh, because the university was going to be accepting grant money from BHP. And she was saying, we cannot do this. We cannot accept money from a company... Oh, my gosh, have I said something now I shouldn't say? OK, um, uh, that wreaks such havoc um, across the s- its sites of engagement and across the local populations where it you know constructs its minds and so forth this is this is not this is not possible, and also we're at risk of losing our independence as a university and so for sure, I think my, I like many other people, w- do get anxious a little bit that in um, you know there's always a risk of collaborating with industry that uh, some of what you might want to hold on to as your sort of intellectual independence is... Uh, is, is ..risks being lost, um, and or issues of intellectual property. You know, managing that is always very, very complicated in, in these kinds of relationships. So, it is challenging, but it seems like this this is the drive forward. But I think it's one that we need to continue to critique in a very robust way and ask questions about. And maybe we do need to kind of rethink how we distribute funds... Um, for research and, and again, how much we produce and anyway, yeah, I could yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there.
2: <laughs> I think that's key. That's how do you see industry because it can be yeah defined very loosely and that's the research that I'm doing. Industry counts as councils. It counts as um, the ladies' restroom committee in Warwick Nabeel. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, who have been there for a hundred years. Um, And do incredible work. Um, The Model Aeroplane Club as well. The Vintage Agricultural Machinery Museum. Um, And many of these things that we've been able to be successful in some small way through leveraging lots of smaller organisations. And not through cash contribution, but through time. It comes back to care again. Time reads as money on a spreadsheet. So, when you collect all of that together, it looks like you are engaging with industry. So... The most recent grant we won, uh, we kind of talk about it in a way that we're quite strategic. In what we were asking for, we were able to offer double that back to the funding body. So it was a two-to-one return for them. So it's a no-brainer, right? But none of that is money. All of that is time, cost it out to be something. So we're able to connect these little organisations together in the same way that we're working collectively to build a stronger, bigger thing. And I, that's the only way I know how to do it. And sleep at night. And, and then right. you also so, bring so
0: much back to that community also with the kind of co, um, co-learning, co-construction. So this yeah, is Exactly. Thing. like, you exactly. kind of think
2: you start off with that process, like, I'm going to give so much, you're going to get so much out of me, no, wait, hang on, how do you do that? Um, and you end up learning so much more from them. It's that cliche of, like, teaching. You get much more out of it, really, than you're giving to students when it works well, right, when it's enjoyable. Um, and that's the same with those sort of collaborations and where that research can be good because, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of issues with the word sustainability. I kind of feel like it is some, one of those exhausted concepts that's been
0: whacked around the head quite a bit.
2: Would have been great if we did it in the 80s, kind of too late
3: now. <laughs> uh-huh. like, a, we lot, a lot of the same things are being said again from the 80s. Mm. And it's, it's as if there was some intent to ignore all that. Mm.
2: So it's kind of like if we we can't just do things a little bit better or a little bit more efficiently, that time, that window I feel is well and truly closed. It's time for some really unpacking and dismantling of stuff and doing things in a very different way. That doesn't answer your question. Sorry. But...
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no, but it's good to get the dialogue going. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a situation that we have in Victoria after bushfires in East Gippsland where now the loggers are all saying we want to get in and, mm-hmm. and use that charred wood at the same time that the government's saying we're getting out of old-growth forest. And a lot of that is old-growth forest. And it's been a, a big battle to stop that. And as architects... We are very challenged when it comes to how do we use wood when most of what gets logged actually goes to paper. Is it okay? There's all sorts of issues there where um, industry carries on business as usual and sustainability to me means new ways of doing it, even if it means everyone has to be laid off and start again because there's something wrong with the culture. Mm -hmm. And that is a very, very difficult place. But... No crisis academics that you can't turn into an opportunity to make a little bit of Academics, obviously, mm. are in a position to chart that future. Mm. If it's, you know, if they see a way. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, absolutely. Okay. I
0: mean, we could...
3: Yes, I mean, yes. Uh, no,
0: completely. We should be taking... Again, what I was saying earlier about when you realise you're... When you take on a position that is a sort of a secure position, um, in a sort of position of leadership or, or quasi-leadership then there's an opportunity to kind of perform that role of the public intellectual, which one should be able to do and um, speak out um, in a reasoned way um, about, you know, contemporary issues. Absolutely. Uh,
1: Thanks for that interesting conversation. Um, One of the things I'm sort of taking out of it is the situational crisis that's really in academia. And um, I read recently that the University of Melbourne has got three point nine billion dollars of cash reserve, you know, in their bank account sitting there, and that's really hard to reconcile against uh, academics that are really um, having to think creatively about linkages to, um, uh, you know, industry in order to be able to justify their research. I was wondering if you'd be able to comment on the crisis in acad- academia and if there's a Path out of it that you see.
0: Yeah, I, I don't, I don't even know whether I would have used such strong language as crisis. And also, I feel like I can't speak adequately, having only just returned. Um, but there does seem to be this growing exposure of the university, a growing vulnerability of the university. I mean, despite what you're describing in terms of that cash that's kind of neatly secured away, I, I don't know anything about that, so I can't speak about that. But I know my experience from the Stockholm context. You know, um, our school working with in what you would imagine would be a wealthy institution. Uh, because it was architecture and we struggled to get money, uh, the, sense of, um, the sense of our com- community being really squeezed, you know, and a sense of general anxiety about, oh, you know, people are no longer going to, going to be with us because if they can't get that next grant round, then we're going to lose them from our community. So certainly there I could tell you in that discrete context of levels of anxiety. Um, it does seem to me that, uh, I, yeah, I don't know, I'm... I'm going to just stop there, actually, because I think it needs... Uh, I would need to know also more about my context here to be able to speak in a way that's useful, um, except to say that I think it would be great to rethink how we do fund research because there's so many lost labour hours in terms of writing. You know, I earlier... Last year, I I spent a good two months collaborating and individually writing five grant applications for various bodies. That's a lot of time. Now, what if I was doing the research instead, like I just cannot help but do a kind of mental calculation on this and sort of, um, you know, scale it up to all my colleagues and then the broader university, I'm going, well, there's something just nonsensical about this. I think there has been research done into this, like literally measuring the time that academics sort of spend. The upside, I suppose, is that when you do write a grant application, you tend to kind of uh, uh, make a more robust sort of a plan for your research. So, it's not all wasted time, but there's just a lot, a lot of uselessness in that kind of uh,
2: perpetual motion machine, <laughs> you sometimes wonder. but I just wonder about those poor researchers who had to write the grant to get the money to do the research on people writing the grants to get the money to do the research. Yeah. And we can just do wheels within wheels and go all the way down. <laughs> Um I mean, yes, it's a crisis, and no, it's not a crisis is the only way but I answer every question like that that's, I think why I'm a theorist and not a historian. <laughs> yeah. I like, think I can argue for all sides and usually against myself most of the time. Um Sure, it's a crisis, absolutely it's different to what was happening before, but then, I get in positions where I look at my work and I, I can't believe... And this sounds so clammy, but, like, I can't believe how lucky I am, right? Because really... Um, if you strip the annoyance of meetings aside and, like, email waterfalls, um, that what I get paid by the government to do is to read and write and think and make weird shit with students. And, like, how is that not... That's pretty amazing. Like, that's ridiculous. I don't have to ever do a door schedule ever again. Like, I think I've got, like, the dream job at times. Um But, yeah, I mean, of course it's in crisis, but it's in crisis in the same way that all people in a position within late capitalism are in crisis, right? every institution has a little bit of, like, money there tucked away that it's not spending on your superannuation or your actual kind of, you know, rights that are due to you. Yeah, they're on
0: strike in London on and off at the moment, for instance, around their pension. Hmm.
2: But I also worked for practices that were very progressive and well-meaning, but also had terrible ways of paying us, like months down the track, you know. I worked in different fields where, of course, you were not even spoken to or or regarded within any kind of planning and and kind of figuring out of what is the way forward. So, I feel like in many of these ways, we think these are peculiar to academia, but the fact is they're not, is that they are spread and they are usually distributed unevenly and unequally. And... In fact, I have some measure of privilege in being able to stand up in front of people and argue about the minutiae of, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, which goes to show maybe it's not such a crisis mm-hmm. because I've had a Campari spritz at the same time, right? So, very comfortable existence. Exactly. Oh, pay for my so industry, <laughs> all the better. <laughs> so we're all complicit. I mean, I talk about this a lot with my students, you know, where I talk about... The issue of sustainability and the problems I have with the word and the way they're not doing things and why do we term this a climate emergency? It's not new. It's not sudden. We've been talking about this for 50 years, certainly as long as I've been alive. It's been talked about since the 19th century that this was going to be a problem. And this is just the very predictable result of a series of processes that have been well discussed and known about for a very long time. And here we are. So to kind of term it an emergency or crisis, Mm. yeah, it's really quite offensive to a whole bunch of people who, you know, we're not Bangladeshi schoolgirls, right? Like, living a very different kind of experience in these times. Okay. Sorry, but I also agree. Like, yeah. I bitch about it every morning when I wake up. And like <laughs> uh, you both spoke about care being kind of a, a peripheral function of both your roles and that often falls to women to... Observe to notice and to, to take up the mantle of providing that care to hold teams together, and however it might manifest. I wonder, what would your jobs look like if care was the central um, aspect, or what what would a system, an employment system look like with care first, the emotional work first, and then the intellectual work? ...assumed and peripheral to that? Mm-hmm. What if it flipped? What what could that even look like? I think Ursula Le Guin already wrote about this, right? You know? <laughs> it's left hand of darkness, isn't it? You know, where there's a, a civilization in which it's not gendered, basically. And so it's... Um, yeah, it falls to people much smarter than me... ...who have done it much longer ago... ...to kind of describe what that society would look like... ...and the ways in which it would work... When, when those sorts of caring and parenting kind of responsibilities are taken on board by a number of different people at different times in order to sustain things. So, I, as always, the answer is always read like really good science fiction. It's yeah. already been Ursula worked Le Guin's out. Ursula Le is a good like. place to go. <laughs> yeah. I had a different
0: read on her than that. I was looking for where the care... Anyway, but that's another conversation. Mm. I was trying to work out the care. Um, I don't think it's a, f- a, f- a matter of flipping things either. I think it's how we integrate... Integrate care, and it's the intellectual labour, and and also to acknowledge that um, caring labour or affective labour is an, is a is a form of um, exercise that that is exhausting and um, wears people down, and that you know amongst us there are many jobs in which care comes first. You know whether it's the air, air hostess or host, whether it's the um, The hairdresser, in fact, there's a fantastic research project going on, I think, that might be starting soon at the University of Melbourne, mapping, or this is how I'd describe it, uh, the affective labour um, offered by hairdressers or barbers who are doing a kind of generalised community service in that they're talking to people through their worries and concerns. So, in a way, yeah, they're cutting your hair, but at the very same time, they're caring for you. And so, there are lots of great examples of the kinds of My hairdresser, for example, is a good
2: example of that. But Muff also did this, right? And their kind of community engagement, which they ran through nail salons and things like that as well, which was to actively elicit, you know, the thoughts and cares and concerns of young women and girls.
0: No, no, and what you're saying too, and what we've heard also also from the audience, that there are so many precedent practices that we can draw on, that we can go back and rediscover and reclaim and relearn from these past practices... Um, well, we too quickly forget, I think, is Yes, I think that's
2: my main critique mm. of the emergent care discourse oh. at the moment, is that it sees itself... So, it's novel. Yes. Yeah. And, and in ways it is to bring it back, certainly, because it has been missing, but there's a long history of that mm. scholarship and also that activism. And in fact, you know, the practices. Yeah. You know, all our grandmothers, I'm sure, were involved in all that kind of work in their communities. Mine certainly was for a long time. So I think we can draw back on that and, yeah, maybe get a bit
1: more agitated about it. Okay. I think that's a very good place to end for the moment. Um, We have a vast amount of food. We have a tab on the bar. We'd really like it. I know it's Sunday evening. We'd like it if you have time to hang around and chat to each other about some of the... Topics and discussions raised. Um, I would also, I suppose, want to defend working with industry um, in some capacity. We're not saying it's all bad. We're not saying it's all bad. No, I know. I mean, Parlour would not exist were it not from an industry research project. Um, And, of course, Naomi Stead, my colleague, your colleague, is in the midst of trying to get up a project around... um, mental well-being in architecture, again, very much working with industry. So, I absolutely agree one needs to be wary. But in my experience, one also needs to be wary of academia. So, I think we all all are in situations where there are contexts in which and pressures um, that we have to operate within. Um, So, I guess I just... And and saying that, as I've said, AWS, I don't think they're here, but they have paid for the food and wine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so please enjoy it. <laughs> okay. Break up and, you know, refreshments will be provided. Thank
0: you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.